Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello all. Welcome back to the Truth in My Days apologetics program. Today, we have Dr. Adrian Torse speaking with John Torse. Today, John is looking at when the Gospel books were published. We are continuing from the last episode. We hope you enjoy. The other form of internal evidence is where there's something not mentioned that should be mentioned. Isn't that an argument from silence, which is a weak argument? Well, an argument from silence is not necessarily weak. It depends on how strong is the expectation that it should be there. Uh, for example, suppose uh, a murder has been committed and a suspect is arrested. The murder happened at 8.30 p.m. on Friday night. The suspect is asked, where were you 8.30 p.m. Friday night? And he says, I was at the Blue Jays game. So the police dragged five witnesses who were at the game, and they ask him, did you see this man there? And they say, no. Would you consent? They say, ah, see, they didn't see you there. You weren't there. You're lying. Would you consider that a reasonable argument? No. Why not? Well, so many people at the game, they may not even notice that person. Exactly. If there's 20, 30, 40,000 people in the arena, why would you, uh, in the stadium, why would you notice this one person? But if the suspect said, I was the starting pitcher at the Blue Jay game, and the five witnesses said, no, we didn't see him, then would it be a strong argument? Yes. Yes. If he's the starting pitcher, you would expect to see him. So an argument from silence can be weak or can be strong, depends on the expectation that it should be mentioned if it actually happened. Can you give us an example of a strong argument from silence? Uh, sure. Suppose you're reading an article about the World Trade Center, and this article talks about when it was built, what it's used for, and other details about it, but makes no mention of its destruction. Then you can be sure that article was written sometime before 9-11-2001. True. So is there such internal evidence in the gospel books that allow us to date them? There's actually quite a number that allow us to narrow down the possible dates. Which ones? Well, let's revisit the one we've already mentioned, the one that's adduced by both sides. Uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Roman armies in the year 70. You remember that the Jews rose up in rebellion in the year 66. And after four years of fighting, the Romans penetrated into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, killed a lot of people, and destroyed the temple. And this, as we mentioned, was foretold by Jesus. It's recorded in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. And this is why liberals will not allow the first gospel book, the first of these three, to come before the year 70, or at most 66, because liberals don't believe Jesus could have foretold the future. But that's begging the question, of course, as we mentioned. The, the real question for us is this. If it had been fulfilled by the time of writing, as the liberals claim, would the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, would they have included, mentioned the fact that, that this prophecy came true? I think so. So important as an event. I agree. I mean, let's, let's consider this, for example. In Acts chapter 11, verse 28, we read, Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up 
and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So here's a relatively minor character, Agabus, giving a relatively minor prophecy about a famine, and yet the book explicitly records its fulfillment. Now, Luke, meanwhile, who wrote Acts and also wrote the gospel according to Luke, actually starts his gospel book this way. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. So again, if he's talking about things fulfilled, you would expect that he would mention the fulfillment of that prophecy. Because he does tend to focus on such things. In chapter 1 of Luke, the angel Gabriel foretells the birth of John the Baptist to his father Zacharias. And Zacharias, when he expresses some doubt, we read this in verses 19 to 20. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Then later we see in verses 59 to 63, so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias, his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. And after that, he was able to speak. So the prophecy about Zacharias is recorded, and so is the fulfillment of the prophecy. So considering that this is Luke's approach, the reasonable conclusion is that if the destruction of the temple had happened by the time of the writing of the book, it would have been specified that Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. So that is uh, good um, internal evidence. Is that what you call it? Yes. And uh, that puts Luke before the year A.D. 70. And since Matthew and Mark came before Luke, all three of these books come before the year A.D. 70. What about the gospel according to John? Well, John doesn't actually mention Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple. So it's not so simple in this case. Uh, we'll deal with the date of John after we go through the dates for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all before A.D. 70. Anything else? Uh, yes, indeed. I notice that in Acts chapter 7, we read of the tragic death of the deacon Stephen, who again is a relatively minor character. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, we read this. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James is a more significant character than Stephen, but not as much as Peter and Paul. Now, if Acts records the death of Stephen and of James, do you think it would record the deaths of Paul and Peter if they had happened by the time the book was written? For sure. Yes. And based on external evidence, best evidence we have, it seems that Paul died in the year 68, 
Peter in the year 64 during that first uh, persecution from Nero. But the book of Acts doesn't mention either of these. So what conclusion can we draw from that? That Acts was published before AD 64. Yes. And we confirm that up. In Acts 8.1, we read this. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And we note also that Jesus warned of persecutions. Now, the first great state-sponsored persecution was started by the Roman Emperor Nero in the year 64. That is also not mentioned. The other persecutions are not this one. So this dovetails with the conclusion we've already reached that the book was published before the year 64. Can we get more precise still? Uh, yes. There's an interesting feature about the book of Acts. It begins as a third-person narrative, covers a lot of time span in its chapters, and then partway through the book, it switches for a time to first-person narrative. And the author starts talking about we, the so-called we passages. Uh, the first one is in Acts 16, 10 to 17, which took place around the year 50. Okay. Now, why does this switch to we? The only reasonable answer is that at this point, the author of the book actually joins Paul's team. It seems to, to depart. And then back again in Acts chapter 20, verses 5 to 16, and then 21, 1 to 19, and then 27, 1 to 28, 16. It becomes we passages again. And the action in these parts really slows down. Before, many years are being covered per chapter, a uh, lot, but now the action has really slowed down. A lot of, of tiny, fine details are being recorded, just as an eyewitness would have seen them. And we ask why? And it's reasonable to conclude that Luke, at this point, was traveling with Paul. He wrote the history of the church up to that point, and then he continued adding as new things happened. Now, the book ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome, and it was specified he spent two years in Rome, which takes us to the year 62. Why does it end there? Okay. Why does it end there? Why does he not go on to tell us what actually happened to Paul? And we've all been waiting to see what happened to Paul. We don't find out. And the only reasonable explanation here is that they have no idea when Paul's case will be resolved. Luke doesn't want to wait any further. He wants to publish the book, and so he finishes it and publishes it at this point. It's the only viable reason to explain why the book ends here and why it doesn't tell us what happened to Paul. So there are a lot of lines of internal evidence converging on this date of AD 60 for Luke. That would be a problem for liberal scholars, wouldn't it? Indeed it would. You remember that they put Mark at 70, and since Luke is later, according to their scheme, and in fact Luke is later, they put Luke into the 80s. And so they have a lot of trouble explaining why these things, the death of Paul, the death of Peter, the persecution under Nero, the things we've mentioned, they have a lot of trouble explaining why the author of the book didn't mention these. 
and they have a lot of trouble explaining why the book ends where it does with Paul uh, under house arrest for two years, no information on what happened after that and so on. So how do you get around that? The only dodge I've actually heard, the only attempt they make to explain that is they say that, well, look, Luke was trying to tell us a story about how the gospel spread from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, the capital of the empire, the heart of the empire. And so that's where he finished the book where uh, the gospel has gone to Rome and Paul's preaching for two years. That's what they wanted to tell us. That's where they finished the book, even though it was actually they wrote it much later. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.